this morning's message, Gratitude for Our Salvation. This morning, I'd like to carefully examine a small little church in Antioch where these early followers of the way were first given the name Christian. I pray that as we study this text and examine this church, that we will be reminded of what it means to be a Christian and to be reminded of the gratitude. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father God, as we would examine and study the scriptures this morning, as we would reflect upon the condition of our heart, even right now in this moment, Father God, as I'm praying, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be enlightened by your Holy Spirit, that, Lord Jesus, you would speak to each one of us right where we are, as we would carefully examine and look at how we are living as a Christian. Whether or not, Father God, we are displaying gratitude or whether or not we are showing ungratitude, Father God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to take our eyes off of circumstances that maybe are designed to distract us. And I pray, Lord, this morning that we would place them on Christ. Father God, help us to fix our eyes on Christ. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we look at your word, that you would speak to each one of us individually and corporately as a church family. As we reflect and think about Thanksgiving and this month of gratitude, I pray we'd be reminded of the most important thing we could be grateful for, our salvation. Father, guide us and speak to us. And if there's any here who's lost, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to their heart this morning. Guide us as a church as we desire to study your word, to know your word, so we can apply your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Antioch was a long way from Jerusalem, roughly about 400 miles to the north. Christ's followers from Jerusalem, they fled there because of the persecution that arose after Stephen's death. Many of us can remember that account when Stephen was sharing the gospel message and he was stoned to death. And where the apostle Paul stood there and he was holding coats. Luke tells us that Wherever these believers from Jerusalem fled, that they shared their faith. I want you to think about that for a moment. As these Christians were scattering because of persecution for their faith, it did not deter them from sharing their faith wherever they were. Most of them, though, only witnessed to fellow Jews. However, that mold was broken when the gospel message was shared with the Gentiles. We see this take place in the previous chapter in Acts 10 with the story of Peter and Cornelius. 
in which the Gentiles received the good news. Some of the dispersed believers from Cyprus, they fled to Antioch and they began sharing their faith with the Gentiles there. Through their efforts, we see in this passage that the first Gentile church was born and the new converts were given the name Christians. I want you to pause and think about that name right now. What does that name mean to you? Many in today's society run around claiming the name Christian. But what does it mean? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to others who call themselves Christian? Antioch was a major ancient metropolis. It was the third largest city in the empire, behind only Rome and Alexandria, with a population of roughly 500,000 people. Many trade routes passed through Antioch, which made this a wealthy, culturally diverse city filled with much pagan worship and sexual immorality. You could somewhat describe it like being the modern-day Las Vegas. Yet in spite of the prevalence of all this immorality, a powerful Christian church started, and it grew. It grew in Antioch. And the way its members lived, the way these Christians lived, led to their being given this name Christian. First, I want to begin by explaining what a Christian is not. It, you see, it's, it's not related to our physical birth. A person does not become a Christian as a result of being born and raised in a Christian home. Salvation is not related to physical birth. Jesus taught that you must be reborn. Some of us can remember always being raised in the church. That's good. That's what we want our parents to do, and hopefully we as parents seek to do for our children. But being raised in the church doesn't make you a Christian. Not turning over a new leaf and trying to be a better person. Sometimes people will come to me and they'll want to get baptized as if if they get baptized, it means they'll turn over a new leaf. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work harder so I can become a better person by living a better life. So I can make more morally good choices. Although those are good things to do and things what Christians do, those don't make you saved. These efforts by themselves do not make you a Christian. Not becoming a Christian by the way of external religious action, like being baptized, partaking in communion, or becoming a member of a local church, those are acts, but those don't make you a Christian. Well, then what is a Christian? The Greek word for Christian is Christianos, which literally means belonging to Christ. Becoming a Christian is a personal experience. You respond to God. No one else does this for you. This is something I teach our teens often. This isn't about your parents' faith. This is your faith. When you come to that point, when you have owned your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, when he has become your personal Lord and Savior, I could look out across this room and ask each one of you guys, do you remember that day in which Jesus Christ saved dear soul? Do you remember that day when he became personal to you? When he became your savior? This is your personal experience. Your best friend doesn't do this for you. I can't do this for you. No one can do this for you. You have to respond to God personally. 
Becoming a Christian is an act of God's grace. Our salvation is something that we are given, something we could never hope to deserve or earn. Some of us need to grab hold of that. It's a gift. It's a free gift for you and I. That is incredibly hard for some of us to grasp. Salvation has to be a gift because we can never work our way out of our sinful state. Romans 3, 23 states, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Romans 6, 23 states, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But this didn't stop God. Romans 5, 8 states, God expressed His love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. Pastor Paul Brown broke it down this way. If someone were to offer you a $100 bill as a gift, it wouldn't actually be yours until or unless you reached out and you accepted that free gift. In like manner, even though you can't earn the gift of salvation, you have to reach out and receive it. The only possible way you can reach out to receive that gift is by meeting two unalterable and non-negotiable conditions which are set forth throughout the scriptures. And they come into clear focus in our passage. With that, with that said, let me explain. So how do I become a Christian? The first, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 9 through 11. To become a Christian, you must believe in the name Jesus Christ. It isn't enough merely to believe in God. To be saved, that is to become a Christian, to be changed and to receive the gift of eternal life and to miss hell and to gain heaven. A person must place his or her faith specifically in Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 makes this clear. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In verses 19 through 20, we see what they believed about Jesus as they preached the word, Lord Jesus. Putting these two verses together, we see that they preached what the word of God, the scriptures, tell us about Jesus. They preached and Jesus was and is God that he is eternal with the Father, that he took on the human form by being born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death for our sins, rose from the grave, and on the third day, and forever lives to save and to keep all that come unto God by him. That's what they believed in their heart. Let's consider how they believed. It was not simply intellectually or academic. You see, you can believe the facts about Jesus and still spend eternity in hell. I want you to think about that for a moment. You begin by believing the facts about Jesus, but believing unto salvation involves going far beyond just agreeing with historical facts. Believing so as to receive eternal life means believing to the point that you surrender your life to Christ. In verse 20, we see that they preached the Lord Jesus. Then in verse 21, we see that a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. In Acts 16, 31, it reads, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The key word in those verses is Lord, which means master. 
It means the one in charge. Therefore, we can deduce that believing in a New Testament sense, as we see in these scripture verses, is handing over the reins of your life to Jesus and saying, Lord, you please take control. I messed it up. I've struggled. Lord, I keep trying on my own, but I can't. I can't handle it anymore. Lord, I'm finally giving up control. And sometimes it takes us getting to the ends of ourselves before we hit that rock bottom moment and give up complete control. Therefore, true biblical faith is giving Jesus Christ control of your thought life. Think about that, men. Control of your thought life, what you're looking at on social media, on your computers, what you're looking at when you're out at the beach. It's giving him complete control of your thought life when that person cuts you off in the car next to you. Your words, should I type it and say it? I hit send, maybe I shouldn't have. Your actions, whether it's nonverbal or verbal expressions, they convey a message. Your relationships, your moral standards, your time. We all have 24 hours in a day, right? Does God have control of my time? My energies, my possessions. In other words, believing in faith in Christ has given him complete control. It's given him everything. It's giving him our all. Maybe right now the reason we're not grateful is because our focus is still on self. We're not living who Christ saved us to be. Maybe at this time in your life you find yourself struggling in some sort of sin. Maybe a wrong relationship, a destructive habit, a bad pattern of thinking, and a holy attitude or a desire that you just simply can't shake off. Maybe it seems as if there's no hope. Maybe you tried everything you could think of, but you seem trapped or stuck with no hope of escape. This is the point in which you need to turn to Jesus and to surrender control of your life to His care as He will give as he will forgive your sins and give you new hope and a new purpose in life. If you haven't trusted him with your all, will you trust him today with all of your life? That's the first essential non-negotiable for becoming a Christian. That is for receiving God's gift of salvation. You must believe in Jesus in a New Testament sense by surrendering yourself to the lordship of his life over your life. The second non-negotiable is turning to the Lord. Now let's look at that second essential non-negotiable. As we look at verse 21, it says, A great number believed and turned to the Lord. Turning to something means turning away from something. I want you to picture this. Look up here. If I'm turning towards something, let's say Jesus is over here. Like Peter, he was walking on water when his eyes were fixed on Christ, right? Right? Remember the situation we, 
We can see it in the scripture text. Jesus is seen by Peter. He calls him to walk out. Peter keeps his eyes fixed on Christ. He's walking closer to Jesus, and his eyes are fixed on Christ. He's turning to Jesus. And then what happens? He turns to what? The winds and the waves. Where are his eyes not at? They're not on Jesus. Where are they now? The winds and the waves and the distractions. Anybody remember in the text what happens next? He starts to sink. And what's he do when he sinks? He turns back to who? And what's he do? He cries out for him. And as he's sinking, what's Jesus do? He pulls him up out of the water. A simple illustration for us to think about what it means to genuinely turn. Turning to something means that you're turning from something else. That turning from the old sinful ways is called repentance. How does repentance work? First, the Holy Spirit, it convicts and it enlightens you. And then you see things differently and then you repent by turning, by the help and the grace of God from your old ways. I want you to think about it. So much we often get stuck in thinking Christianity is all about morality. If I don't cuss, smoke, chew, dip, have sex, do these different things, then that makes me Christian. Not necessarily. Those are things that Christians do, but that's not what makes you Christian. That's not necessarily repenting and turning away from. You're just becoming moral. By the grace of God, as I turn to Jesus through the study of His Word, as I begin to read it, as I meditate on that Word through a D4 study group, through an accountability group with other believers, through a Sunday school class, through preaching, as I allow that Word to meditate on my heart, Romans 12 says that the Word starts to what? Transform us. It starts changing the way we think. We can't live that way no more, can we? It takes control of our life. So why do we keep going back into bondage, into that old sinful flesh self? When out of gratitude because of the new spiritual life that Christ has given us, through life in His Spirit, we don't have to live there anymore. Mark 1.15 says, repent and believe the gospel. You see, genuine faith, it's always accompanied by repentance, no exceptions. Faith and repentance are inseparable. Think about that for a moment. How many Christians walk around calling themselves Christians and they're acting like non-Christians? One of the things we hear all the time from non-Christians is, I don't want to be like one of those, say it with me, hypocrites, right? No one's going to be perfect, but the point is, is, are we genuinely repenting and turning from our old ways? They're inseparable. You know what that means as we walk around and as we look at each other, we're going to get into this in a moment. As we examine each other's lives, we can know and see a Christian. We're going to talk about that here in a few minutes. So how do I know a Christian? Look at verse 22 and 23. We will see God's grace in their lives. What does that mean? It means that Barnabas could see in their lives clear evidence that they had believed in Jesus, that they had turned to the Lord and had turned from their old ways. Does that mean that a Christian is flawless? Of course not. Can a Christian backslide? 
Unfortunately, yes. But two things are true if they do. For one, they will eventually become so miserable in their sin. And as a genuine Christian, can't become nonchalant with no conviction about their sin. And secondly, if a genuinely saved Christian gets far enough off track of God's will and stays long enough, the Lord will chastise him or her. So how can you and I know a genuine Christian when you see one? The answer is that you can literally see the grace of God in operation in a true Christian's life. You'll see something different about them. Their driving motivation is a desire to please God, and that difference will be evident by others. He or she will more clearly discern between right and wrong and will thus choose more God-honoring decisions, which will make a difference in their life. We see specific examples of God's grace in their lives. Notice they assembled on a regular basis. Hebrews 10.25 reminds us of this importance when it says, Let us not neglect the habit of meeting together. Acts 2, 42 to 47, they gathered daily. They broke bread together, and as they did, they gave to each other as they had need. Why do you think there was such genuine love? They wanted to be together because they're better together. We're better as Christians when we're together. Others are attracted to what we have to offer when we are committed to being together. You know what happens when we miss a week, turns into two weeks, and three weeks without gathering with our brothers and sisters in Christ? We start going back to what? Our old ways. Because our eyes are off of Christ and they're back on our old ways. It's accountability to gathering together. So we can become who Christ saved us to be. Not just individually. As a church. As a church family. Notice they continued to learn. In verse 26 we see that Barnabas and Saul, now Paul, taught them for an entire year. As the verse goes on it was here. We're following being taught these disciples in Antioch are now called Christians. Disciple literally means learner. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The original language of that verse is such that it could be translated as go on growing. Go on growing. Think about the importance of that go on growing. Notice they reached out in compassion to those in need. Look at verses 27 through 30. They learned that some of the people were in need and from the famine in the land. So these Christians in Antioch, they acted. That's another mark of a genuine believer. They gave out their generosity to those who were in need. That's compassion. That's the love of Christ. That's what Christians do. So you can identify a Christian by the fact that you can see the grace of God in their life. You can see the difference that Jesus Christ has made in their life. You can see that difference not only in their words, but also in their attitudes and in their actions. 
Among those identifying evidence, you'll see that they are faithful to their local church, where they are continually learning and growing spiritually. They're reaching out unselfishly to others in their time of need. And again, those things don't make them a Christian, but they give evidence that they are a Christian, in other words. They give evidence that they have repented and then believed in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of their life. Now, I want to highlight this morning three lessons we can take away from these Christians in Antioch that will help us to better understand how we can be known as a Christian in Brunswick County. How can we show gratitude this month and every month hereafter for our salvation in grateful times to a world that desperately needs Christians to act like Christians? Lesson one, being a Christian shows. Antioch was a city filled with sin. As a result, the Christians' Christ-likeness was obvious. You see, it was completely opposite of how the world acted. Paul later challenges the Christians at the church of Philippi in Philippians 2, 15 to 16. He says, become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. What this means and teaches us is that as Christians, we shine. We shine. Who do we shine? Who do we shine? Say it. Jesus. Right? We shine Jesus. Our faith should show. The light of our love for Jesus in the backdrop of sin-filled world we live in today should make us stand out. Becoming a Christian is transformational. When we invite Jesus into our lives, we are reborn and transformed into new people. The more we allow God's transforming power to work in our lives, the more our faith will show, the more we will stand out to a world that desperately needs it. So if someone who claims to be a Christian is not different, if he or she does not stand out, well, it should call into question the sincerity and depth of his or her faith. Ponder this. I think this text teaches us that Christian is not just a name we give ourselves. If you have to tell somebody that you're a Christian, that might be a problem. It's more of a designation that others should give us. Notice the believers in Antioch, they didn't call themselves Christians. They didn't come up with that name, did they? Who came up with the name? It was the lost people. They called them Christians. They said there's something different. We're going to give them the name Christian. The same should be true of us, our neighbors, our coworkers, our fellow teammates, our peers, etc. They should see the way that we live, act, and talk. They should see our morals, our behaviors, the way we respond to trials and troubles and hardships in life. And they should think, now wait a minute. When I see that Bobby Davis, there's something different. Not sure quite what it is. Really not sure what it is. He must be a Christian, one of them guys. Oh, yes, I see it now. That person must be a Christian. You see, there is often a big difference between one who claims to be and what others know him to be. Think on this. People tend to believe what others say about us 
more than what we say about ourselves. Lesson two, being a Christian means you grow and mature, becoming more like Christ. This requires discipline and it requires training. Remember these Christians in Antioch, they were taught by Barnabas and Saul for one full year. Here I'm reminded by a quote by Kierkegaard. It said, to become an admirer of Jesus is much easier than it is to become a follower of Jesus. Think about that for a moment. The church today has a lot of fans. We show up on a Sunday and we admire Jesus from a distance. That's the extent of it. It's much easier to be an admirer of Jesus than to become a follower of Jesus. Implied in Romans 12 where Paul said, don't be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It has the implied admonition that if you're not being transformed by God's renewing power, then you're being conformed by the forces opposed to God. The question is not if you're going to be influenced and formed spiritually. The question is by whom will you be influenced and transformed? If we don't choose to be influenced by God, if we don't set our minds on things that are above, then our minds will be set on earthly things. Then we will be influenced by the world. I talk to the teens about this all the time. We don't accidentally drift towards Christ-likeness. We have to be intentional and in being transformed with our thinking. So I could ask you guys to just do an examination of your past week. 24 hours a day, seven days in this last week. How much time was intentionally spent on growing and being transformed into Christ-likeness? How much time was spent watching college football? I myself, I watched a lot yesterday. How much time was spent doing other things that take our eyes off of Christ and put them on this world? Who's influencing us? Christ or the world? I wonder if that's part of the reason why we don't look much different today. Lesson three. Being a Christian means you're a generous giver. As noted earlier, the church in Antioch, they gave generously to those in Judea who were in need from the famine in their land. They heard of a need and had a desire to and acted on that need by giving sacrificially as they were able. As we come to our time of invitation, I pray you will respond as the Lord leads, as the worship team comes. I'm going to challenge you to respond. how the Lord is placed on your heart. Here's my challenge during the invitation. It's, it's simply this. Would you respond to how the Lord is speaking to you? Individually? Maybe if you feel so compelled or led to grab a friend and pray with them, do so. I don't know what the Lord is saying to you, but I want you to examine and reflect and think about what we talked about this morning. Your gratitude concerning your salvation. Is it something you have taken for granted? Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ. And maybe this morning the Lord's 
tugging at your heart. And you know you can't leave here without making that decision, grabbing and receiving that free gift. If that's your decision, come down and talk to me, and we'll walk through that process. But I pray whatever the Lord lays on your heart to do, I pray you'll do it. If you feel led to come and kneel and pray, do so. If you feel led to pray at your seat, do so. If you feel led to stand and sing while they're singing, sing. But however you feel led to pray, I pray that you would respond. Respond to how the Spirit is leading you. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you to respond as they, as they lead us in song. And then I'll close this out after. Father God, as we would come to a time of invitation and response, I, I know there are so many of us in here that have so many different thoughts going on in our mind. Lord, I pray right now that you would zero in through your Holy Spirit to each person individually and to us as a church corporately. That, Father God, you would help us to respond in whichever way you have called us to do so this morning, not missing the opportunity, Father God, for what you've called us to do. So as we spend this next time in response, I pray, Lord Jesus, each person would speak to you, commune with you, and meet with you. Father, I ask this in Jesus' precious holy name.